We'll take a glass together in celebration of our meeting. In celebration of our being face to face. Friendly, civilized. Members of the race I'll drink to you No, I to you You'll drink to me Then you to me I'm sure we too oh, I know we do But find no finer company Thank you, Baron We'll take a glass together And we will lift it to the good life And as we're lifting it We will most sincerely say Roses Your health, sir Salute and skull. Nastrovia! Almotrasante! <laughs> For one brief moment in this cold and careless day, we'll take a glass together! Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 7, 2020. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So I wanted to start off the show a little bit differently than we would normally start it off. Uh, I just wanted to talk about you know what's going on in the world right now, mm-hmm. and uh, this week we've had we've seen global protests supporting Black Lives Matter and the systemic racism in our institutions. <sighs> On Broadway and at the theatrical level, we've seen a number of artists that have come out to share their experiences in our theatrical theatrical community, both on stage and off stage, and most of it was shocking and abhorrent to me. As a white man, I feel like it's time for me to listen, not to speak, if uh, you'll grant me the talk less, smile more from uh, Hamilton. (laughs) Uh, On our daily podcast today on Broadway, Matt uh, Tamanini and Ashley Steves, who are both white, have been amplifying these voices of artists that are speaking out. And I encourage everybody to take a listen to these podcasts. Um, Broadway radio is very white. Uh, I know this, and it is one area of change that Matt and I have been focused on, uh, on working on in, in the last, actually, two, two, more than two years or so. And we are constantly looking for other voices to join us. So I wanted to acknowledge that this has been a, a, a very... Uh, important thing and that we're not overlooking it on this week on Broadway, but I felt I guess three white men, uh, you know, talking on a podcast about theater. I think it's more important for us to listen right now than to talk about these issues. So I wanted to acknowledge that it was happening. So in this week's show, uh, today is June 7th, as I said, and this was the day that was supposed to be the Tony Awards. Um, and uh, as we know, the Tony Awards are not happening. We'd all be at Tony Award breakfasts or brunches and <laughs> rehearsals at Radio City Music Hall and things like that across the Broadway community. But it's not happening. But uh, there were supposed to be two um, e- events that were going to be streaming at 6 and 7 p.m. tonight, which have both been canceled. Uh, and uh, they're pending being rescheduled, but we haven't heard any details about that. But I, I do believe the CBS uh, Grease sing-along thing at 8 p.m. is still on on CBS, so check that out if you'd like. But uh, we thought we'd talk about some of our favorite moments in uh, Tony Awards past. And so, Peter, I want to open up the floor to you. Tell us, uh, you know, what are your what's, what are some of your favorite Tony Award memories? Well, the first one I'm going to mention is from somebody we don't associate with Broadway, and that's the pop singer Ruth Brown, who won in 1989 for Black and Blue, um, a review. And um, the best thing about it was her acceptance speech. When she got up there, she said, it's taken me 42 years 
to climb those eight steps. Hmm. And I thought that was terrific. Well, when I met her, I brought this up and she said, well, the best part about it was as soon as I was done and walking off stage, Angela Lansbury rushed over to me and said, that is the best acceptance speech I have ever heard. And she said, that's terrific you know, because Angela Lansbury at that point had given plenty of her own. And um, so I thought that was really nice that Angela Lansbury made the effort. But what a clever way of expressing how long it takes to win awards uh, in many cases. So, um, so that's a particularly uh, favorite one. Uh, I'm certainly old enough to remember the first national TV Tony broadcast uh, back in 1967, which was a very exciting year. And how interesting when you think of it, that the opening number was Vilcoman uh, from Cabaret, because of course uh, it was a welcome to the Tony Awards being on national TV. And it was quite an exciting year because that was also the year that um, Mary Martin and Robert Preston did I Do, I Do, and Barbara Harris uh, was doing The Apple Tree. Barbara Harris gave a very flustered acceptance speech when she won, and the rumor has it, Hmm. I don't know if this is true, but the rumor has it that Warren Beatty had broken up with her earlier in the day, which, if that's the case, was pretty lousy of him. You know, I mean, it was lousy of him to tell her on a Sunday, so to speak. And Mm. it, um, but it did affect her. It, something was wrong and it was really quite bizarre to, um, to see her give such an odd acceptance speech, but she certainly, certainly, certainly deserved the prize. And, um, and that was really quite wonderful, at least that. But, um, those are two that come to mind immediately as well as Brian Bedford, when he accepted his Tony for the school for wives. Now that was the year that John Gilgood was nominated with Ralph Richardson. Uh, Both of them were in the same play, Home. And Alec McCowan, a very distinguished British actor, was also up for a prize. And everybody thought that one of those three men would win, especially John Gielgud, um, who had won an honorary Tony for his um, performance in Ages of Man, which was his one-man show, giving uh, Shakespearean sonnets and soliloquies and what have you. But Anyway, people thought that he would certainly win. And Brian Bedford won for the School for Wives, the Moliere play. And it was so great when he got up there and he said, wise choice. So I enjoyed that immeasurably. So those are some of mine. Michael, how about you? Oh, well, since uh, Peter's starting with acceptance speeches, one that I wanted to mention was Hal Linden's for the Rothschilds. And I I couldn't immediately find it to, to get exactly what he said but basically he he started out as a an understudy and an ensemble member uh so he had that background and he really dedicated his award to the p i I think he maybe even said the people in the back (laughs) the people sitting upstairs (laughs) um you know uh showing that it is possible to be standing winning a tony for uh best actor in a musical for when you start out as an understudy and or an ensemble member and and that was that was a really memorable moment um as far as an acceptance speech that's the one that that comes to my mind uh the um so i'll I'll start with that one and then will then i guess we can get into the performances Oh, another one I enjoyed was Leslie Uggams, um, not necessarily because of what she said, but because what the presenter said, because um, <clears throat> she accepted the award from Groucho Marx. And yeah. um, and she said, um, I, I, I am so happy. I don't know where my feet are. And he <laughs> said, would you like me to look? So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Groucho was good with those ad libs. Yeah, what's what's interesting to me is the fact that um, I was surprised when I read the statistic. I was surprised for a second, and then a second later, I said, "Yeah, that makes sense." And that is that the uh, statistics show that the main reason people watch the Tonys is not to discover who will win, but to see the numbers from the nominated shows. Mm. And, you know, when you think of it, it makes sense. We can't expect the people who live some distance from New York, um, like in 1971, said, well, a lot of people think that Ronald Radd of Abelard and Eloise will take best featured actor in a play. But I'm going with Ed Zimmerman and the philanthropist. You know, I mean, it's just (laughs) you can't expect that. So it's the numbers that are really significant. And that brings up the famous 1971 show um, where Mm -hmm. it was the 25th anniversary. And they brought back so many people who were in nominated shows. It was really quite wonderful to see it. Um, David Wayne uh, from Finian's Rainbow did When I'm Not Near the Girl I Love. Alfred Drake got to go twice because he did Where Is the Life That Laid 
I led from Kiss Me Kate as well as the olive tree from Kismet. So um, Robert Moss doing I Believe in You, Carol Channing, of course, doing Before the Parade Passes By, and doing the Ephraim speech beforehand, Zero Mostel doing If I Were a Rich Man. So they did one from every year, except they did two from 1966. And the reason was um, Angela Lansbury uh, was, and Richard Kiley were, um, I think, co-hosts. So as a result, that year they did um, open a new window from MAME and uh, The Impossible Year, um, The Impossible Dream from... Um, from Anna La Mancha and um, they were two different seasons but um, they were uh, definitely both from uh, the same year and um, and it had more to do with that so uh, that was a great show and uh, by the way um, those of us who were interested in seeing who won were very happy to see that um, Stephen Sondheim and company uh, did so well that night um, because of course that was a landmark musical oh speaking of that um, uh, an aside, um, I've talked to two producers recently. Uh, one is Jack Lane, who is one of the producers of a company who swears it's coming back. But the other night I was, I was walking up to Whole Foods and somebody said hello and I didn't know who it was, even though he was wearing a t-shirt saying the minutes. And, um, it turned out to be Jeff Richards, the, uh, hmm. one of the producers yeah. of the minutes, uh, who swears that the minutes will reopen. So anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, let's hope they're right. Um, let's hope they're telling um, exactly what's going to happen. But anyway, uh, just a little aside there, since I happen to run into those gentlemen. Okay, Michael. So do you have anything else you want to add into that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, actually, I did remember another very memorable acceptance speech that I, I would have to say it was unfortunately in a negative way. And that was Elaine Stritch for her <laughs> her her, uh, her one woman show which really wasn't a one woman show but that's you know the way she kind of treated it and that was sad because i was hoping she would step up to the plate and be very gracious and not try to go too long but they wound up having to cut her off which rarely 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 ever happens at the tonys maybe the only time i can remember actually um, um michael may i say here were you yes. in the press room that that year no i was not please tell us what happened yeah. <laughs> well uh she came up there and she was really spouting and snorting fire and she went on and on about how terrible it was and i tell you i came within an inch of saying come on come on really i mean this show has such a time limit one year in fact um it ain't nothing but the blues didn't get a chance to perform because cbs was going to pull the plug at 11 o'clock no matter what and you know time is a constraint here and uh, and i really came so close to saying something to her because again my history with her was so checkered and um i had so many pleasant and unpleasant experiences with her hmm. but i really thought you know if i say something the room could very well turn against me <laughs> Even though every other journalist may very well be thinking what I'm thinking, right? So, so I really felt very ashamed that I didn't have the courage to do it. But um, uh, she got a lot out. She got much more out uh, up there than she did when she was uh, on stage. Believe me. Well, yeah, I remember that. That was one of the unfortunate things is that she wasted so much time. Exactly. Because she it seemed like she took forever to start saying anything. And she kept That's pausing, right. you yeah. know, just showing how yeah. uh, how affected she was. And, and, and so that, that, that whole so thing. So what's really the difference between that and Bette Midler? Oh, nothing. Uh, <laughs> Bette Midler did much the same thing. Um, but, you know, I think really people have to understand that um, the, the network is not very sympathetic to anything mm. um, uh, involving time. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's amazing to me how many people say, of course, that they um, don't have anything prepared. Um, and that's why it was wonderful when Judy Kay uh, said after she won for Nice Work, if you can get it, chandeliers have been very good to me, which was really <laughs> she yeah. won for uh, Phantom. And I love Dorothy Loudon. Dorothy Loudon was virtually retired before Mike Nichols called her and said, listen, I'm doing the show called Danny and you'd be great for this character called Miss Hannigan. And she came back. And so it was so wonderful after she won. Uh, that she got up there and she said, I can play this room. And uh, yes, she could. And she could certainly play the Alban Theater at that time, too. So uh, so she was really quite wonderful. <laughs> um, so Peter started talking about the amazing 1971 Tony Awards. And, and uh, I, it's true. And I'm very happy to say I just Googled. Uh, and it does seem like the entire thing is now up on YouTube, along with several other complete Tony Awards from the past. Just Google, I, I'm sorry, go to YouTube and type in Tony Awards 
complete, and you'll probably be amazed by what you find. That 1971 edition was spectacular. I remember uh, Peter mentioned John Raitt singing Hey There from Pajama Game. And uh, when Hal Prince um, got up to accept an award for, I must have been company, right? It was, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, he was visibly moved and, and vocally moved. He, he talked about uh, how, how extraordinary it was to see all of these people, uh, these great stars come and uh, recreate their legendary performances. And he mentioned John Raitt specifically because, of course, that was one of Prince's first shows, The Pajama Game, as a producer. Um, and he, you could hear it in his voice and see it in his face how moved he was. And I completely understood it. It, it must have been an unbelievable experience to be there. Uh, I had a list of uh, performances from that evening, but I think Peter mentioned most of them. Uh, did you mention Zero Mostel, If I Were a Rich Man? And he also did Comedy Tonight. And also did Comedy Tonight. Yeah. yeah. Um, Vivian Blaine's Adelaide's Lament. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the, it's interesting, some of the uh, performances were by uh, people who then got to recreate their roles in the films, yeah. which doesn't happen all that often, but we did all, we did get Robert Preston doing uh, You've Got Trouble and Yul Brynner doing uh, Shall We Dance with Patricia Morrison mm-hmm. uh, as, uh, as Gertrude Lawrence was long since deceased. Uh, and uh, Peter mentioned Robert Morris and how to succeed, but it's always amazing when you get to see the people who did not get to recreate their roles in the film, such as David Wayne and Finian's Rainbow, which Peter also mentioned. And one could go on and on. That that evening is just uh, amazing. Now, what it meant, unfortunately, you know, you have to take the good with the bad, and there's not room for everything. And so that meant we didn't have any numbers from. Um, Company. Uh, from company or, <laughs> or the Rothschilds or the Rothschilds. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but you know, that's all right. Uh, I guess uh, you just have to weigh, 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 weigh the one against the other. And, and well, what was really mourned was the following year when um, Follies didn't perform. Um, right. um, I have, you ever heard a reason why I don't, I don't remember um, hearing a reason why, um, but, um, but it didn't, um, which was really too bad. Um, well, uh, certainly, as I say, Will Coleman was one of the all-time great numbers. Um, do you know what the opening number was in the 1959-1960 Tony Awards? Now, that was yeah. the year of Gypsy. That was the year of The Sound of Music. That was the year of Fiorello, Once Upon a Mattress, and Take Me Along. So do you want to hazard a guess what the opening number was for that ceremony? <laughs> No, I won't. <laughs> you won't. Not even with all those uh, possibilities, you won't even take a chance. Come well, I'm, g- I'm kind of going to guess that it was something really obscure and weird. <laughs> it was uh, a little uh, atypical. It was the Star Spangled Banner, and everybody um, stood, and uh, then they sat down. This was when they were in function rooms. Um, I think the Waldorf Astoria, and. Um, yeah, a few years ago, uh, when I was at my buddy Ken Bloom's house, we were watching the Tonys, and um, it, it, it it seemed a little slick. It seemed a little um, low class at, at moments, and all that. And we said, "Gee, for the for the great days when there was such uh, loftiness in the Tonys, those were the good old days." And Ken had a a copy of the 1960 uh, broadcast, and we put it on. And it was a little pokey, I have to admit. Mm. First off, there were no numbers, not yeah. a one. And as I say, that seems to be why people tune in. One, one of the best numbers uh, certainly was applause uh, back in uh, 1970. Um, uh, unfortunately, the, uh, it, things happen, and um, there's a scene, there's a moment in applause, the, the title song, when um, a person goes on roller skates and glides across the stage. Unfortunately, he fell. I don't know if anybody noticed that it was a very quick thing, but, uh, but indeed, um, yeah, it still didn't spoil the number, because that's one of the great uh, title songs of all time. So um, I was just looking at a little bit of that, and that's wonderful, because uh, Bonnie Franklin, of course, originated that role who leads that number mm-hmm. uh and then there was a tv version of applause that was filmed in london but mm-hmm. she didn't do it and uh 
And also the cast album version, as, as we mentioned quite recently, right. is not even remotely the full applause no. number because it doesn't have all of those song parodies. Mm-hmm. That center section where all of the gypsies get up and, and parody various songs with uh, new lyrics referencing applause. Right. Um, and so if you and that section is in the in the TV version, but that one doesn't have Bonnie Franklin. So if you want to see the full number with Bonnie Franklin and with that section, you have to watch the Tony Awards clip. And it's really pretty amazing. Um, Two years in a row, we got tremendous uh, opening numbers, and that was in um, 90 and 91. And 90, uh, we'll take a glass together from a grand Mm -hmm. hotel, open the show. And um, that's one of the all-time greats. Uh, 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 In my years of seeing Broadway musicals, and I dare say that um, I've seen about 80 to 90 percent of them in the last uh, 50 plus years. Um, The best one I ever saw was Who's That Woman from Follies? But in second place is We'll Take a Glass Together from Grand Hotel. And it was Mm -hmm. great to see it open the show. And, you know, it worked so well on TV because um, it's a number that truly centers on two people. There is a chorus um, in the background and there were shots of the chorus, too. But because it was such a a tight uh, shot, um, it really worked spectacularly well. The following year, we got that marvelous number, Our Favorite Son, both of these of course were by Tommy Toon uh, in terms of the staging and um, that was the one with the um, clapping and the uh, hand gestures and uh, everybody had to be uh, synchronized and uh, do very very well I will concede if you see a movie called King of Jazz from the 30s you will see essentially this number Um, Tommy Toon must have seen that movie but still it's a spectacular number from the Will Rogers Follies and um, it's certainly one of my uh, all time favorite memories um, of um, a, uh, a number on the Tonys, but, um, those, those are two that really come to mind as being truly, truly spectacular and a great way to open the show. Well, and before we go any further, we should probably mention, uh, lest we forget that er- earlier this week, the New York times did a great article on the opening of the 2011 Tony awards, which was called, it's not just for gays anymore led by Neil Patrick Harris. And that had, um, music by Adam Schlesinger, who just died of coronavirus in April, which was a huge tragedy, obviously, and lyrics by David Javerbaum, or is that how he says it? Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, amazing lyrics by David Javerbaum uh, for uh, samples, quote, attention, every breeder, you're invited to the theater. Um, (laughs) Quote, we're asking every hetero to get to know us better row <laughs> and <laughs> quote uh come in and be inspired there's no sodomy required they said that they really uh, that last one was almost didn't make it the the censors or, or cbs or whatever said we don't think you know maybe you should say that and so um Javerbaum prepared a an alternate lyric um just to you know to to calm them down and and supposedly Neil Patrick Harris was going to sing the alternate instead. And in fact, the alternate lyric apparently even appeared on the teleprompter when he, when he was performing the number, but he sang the original anyway. And I just thought that that was an incredibly clever number. I thought they, it really took a lot of nerve for them to go there, but, uh, but comic brilliance, sometimes you have to, you have to go the extra step. I, I hope no one was offended by it in any way because I, I didn't think it was uh, offensive. I, I certainly didn't. And uh, it was kind of a really clever acknowledgement of of that whole subject, which which is always open for 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 interesting discussions about um, uh, you know the. the the great amount of interest uh, in the theater and musicals and plays among gay people, but certainly not exclusively. And that there are lots and lots and lots of straight people, of course, who love the art form as well. Hmm. Uh, so I uh, made a note to myself at the top of the show to mention this, and I did not mention it. So I'm an idiot. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if you are, uh, if you're, if, 
folks out there are aware of the podcast called My Little Tonys uh, oh. with uh, Tim uh, Cove and Anna Hulkauer. Um They um, review every year's Tony Awards. And they've been they've been digging back into the archives and, and listening and talking about every year's archives. So if this is a topic that you really enjoy, check out the uh, My Little Tony's podcast. It's it's really, really great. I'm a big fan of it. So uh, check that out as well. Uh, Michael reminded me when he said that he was uh, look he, that all the Tony's are available online. I think that that's where they they've gotten most of them. And uh, yeah, and I just uh, I just went to Amazon and typed in Broadway's Lost Treasures, and I was very happy to see that all three of those DVDs, uh, those fabulous collections, are currently available. I, 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 I thought for some reason that maybe they were out of print, but not according to what it says on Amazon, at least uh, not what I, what I saw just now. <laughs> so those are incredible. We've mentioned um, several of them already, uh, and but there are there are so many others. Uh, there's B. Arthur and Angela Lansbury <laughs> recreating Bosom Buddies in 1987. Just <laughs> just phenomenal. Um, there's the opening number from Cabaret. I think actually Peter mentioned that earlier mm-hmm. with Gerald Gray. And there again, yes, he got to do the movie, but it was a completely different conception of the number. And of course, it's just the energy of live performance is different from film, even though that I, I think that's a brilliant film. Uh, but to see him do that uh, with the original, the I guess the Ron Field staging, right? Um, mm-hmm. And in front of a live audience and with all of the original cast is extraordinary. Uh, Barbara Harris does, now there, you know, there's a person who never got to really do a major musical role on film. Is that correct? I imagine so. I can't yeah. think of one. Yeah, I mean, she, very she, few movies to begin with. Very few movies to begin with, and you know, a, a couple of really big movies, but not musicals. And she was such an extraordinary, special, brilliant stage star. So I think that um, a lot of that does come across in the Tony clips of, for example, "Ode to Be a Movie Star" and "Gorgeous." from the Passionella segment of the apple tree because she was, you know, performing live uh, sometimes on the Tonys. I, um, I don't know if it's more true in recent years, maybe not. Sometimes, sometimes stuff is pre-recorded. The vocals are pre-recorded, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you can kind of tell when they are and when they aren't. Uh, and it's very clear that, that Barbara Harris's are not, and she's singing live in that, that, incredibly adorable characterization that she had for um for that character uh, who sings oh to be a movie star uh and then the transformation she does for gorgeous uh and she's feeding off the live audience energy and you can just you know i don't know how many audience shots there are but you can just tell how much they're loving it and it's an extraordinary wonderful really stellar, stellar moment. This brings up a good point when you talk about the audience. And um, for those who have never been to the Tonys, I know it's expensive, but nevertheless, you do owe it to yourself to go at least once Mm. because what happens is you are in a room with people who care as much as you do. And there's something about being in that big a room with that many people who are invested in every moment of it. That's very, very exciting. Um, I mean, Sondheim has taught us no one is alone, but you really realize it right Right then and there, when you are there at the, uh, be it um, a small theater when they used to do it at uh, one of the Broadway houses or at Radio City. Um, I've had a lot of wonderful experiences um, being in the audience. One of my favorites was the year of Evita. Now, the thing was that um, I, I know I'm going to lose people right now when I say that I've never been a particular Patty Lapone fan because the first time I ever saw her was in The Baker's Wife, and um, I didn't think she was very good. So we got off to a, a shaky start. So I've never been a fan, and yet, and yet, being in that audience at the Mark Hellinger Theater, and I was in the um, the mezzanine, and sitting in front of me was Patty Lapone's family, and seeing them react as a family when she won. 
was just so wonderful that I just got into uh, Patti Lapone in a different way because it really was so personal in that sense. So um, I really enjoyed that immeasurably, seeing the family react as a family. And that was really quite wonderful. Um, also, I don't know if they still do it. I don't know how it works, but there was a time when you could volunteer to be a seat filler mm. because Alex Cohen, at least uh, when he was doing it, uh, insisted that when they pan the audience, there'd be no empty seats. And of course, when somebody wins, he comes up and then he has to go, he or she goes off stage and um, whatever, goes to the press room. So he always wanted seats filled. So um, in 1980, I think it was, yeah, I, I volunteered to be a seat filler. Uh, and um, I was Ian McKellen, um, who won for Amadeus. Um, I filled his seat. And, you know, I mean, having been at the balcony for um, the first one I went to was um, 77 when I uh, saw the um, one where Annie won. I was there in 78, 79. And in 80, I volunteered to be a seat filler and they accepted me. And uh, the point was the first two, I think, were at the Schubert um, that I went to. And I was in one of the last rows of the of the real balcony, the second balcony. And so suddenly to have Ian McKellen's seat, uh, even though it was late in the evening, needless to say, when they gave out the award for best actor in a play, um, still to be so close to mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor when she uh, talked about the Needleheimers as opposed <laughs> to the uh, Niederlanders. I mean, it was a word that was totally unfamiliar to her. <laughs> and um, and for years, people would refer to the Needleheimers um, as an expression whenever they meant the uh, Niederlanders. They purposely made that quote-unquote mistake because it was so funny that Elizabeth Taylor, you know, was out of her element. Uh, she, you know, was a Hollywood person and she certainly wasn't a Broadway person. Um, I'm told it's especially true if you saw her in private life. Lives, but I didn't, so I don't know. <laughs> I did. But, did you? Yeah. Was she terrible? Um, not great. How about Richard Burton? Uh, well, it was really more of a personal appearance for both of them. I, uh-huh. I felt, and at least the night I saw it, I wouldn't imagine if it it varied greatly from night to night. You know, the funny thing about that Needleheimer thing is, apparently, sh- she did have some familiarity. Uh, because I mean, you know, I mean, first of all, how can you not know that name? And then also, right after she said it, I remember she she started laughing. She did. Uh, at her own, you know, f- foolishness, and she said, "I'm sorry, Jimmy." Uh, ah, so I, I think. Remember that. Uh-huh. So I don't know. I, maybe she just got flustered. Maybe who knows? Maybe there was something wrong with the teleprompter. You know. Well. Well, uh, she was reading from a card, but um, oh, a card. This, okay. This brings, of course, up the famous Anthony Quinn thing, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know if you remember this, but um, oh, yeah, <laughs> um, he was giving uh, some uh, uh, award. I don't remember what award it was, but the point is, when he read the win- and the winner is Neil Simon for Lost in Yonkers, and that's when we realized that Neil Simon was going to win for best play. But this was not um, uh, the award for best play. It was. Um, some other award right. and so but everybody then knew that neil simon had won for lost in yonkers which really wasn't big news because most people expected that neil simon would win for lost in yonkers um i believe he'd already won the pulitzer prize for the play so it, it was expected but still the thing was anthony quinn was on a type of automatic pilot for after reading the four or five nominees however many there were for his category he opened the envelope and it said neil simon lost in yonkers now what had happened was that uh, I later heard the explanation. And what had happened was, yes, he did have a card that had the name of the winner on one side. But what had happened was the person who put that in the envelope um, had also heard that Neil Simon had won for Lost in Yonkers, and he wrote it down just as a a memo to himself. (laughs) And unfortunately, you know, there's a 50% chance you're going to get it wrong. Um, He opened the envelope, and there he saw uh, the way he pulled it out and said, Neil Simon lost in Yonkers. Better still, when the winner of best play is Neil Simon lost to Yonkers, when that moment finally came in the broadcast, Neil Simon got up there and said, um, listen, I was in the men's room when Anthony Quinn yeah. was up here. Yeah. <laughs> Did anything interesting happen? While he was- <laughs> so uh, so that was great. I mean, you, you expect Neil Simon to come up with something good, and he certainly did not disappoint us um, in doing that. So um, so that's uh, a flub that was um, kind of uh, wonderful. Peter, let me uh, interrupt for a second. We are uh, fortunate we have 
at least one seat filler that's joining us here as well. Rob Johnston has gotten some great stories about uh, seat filling. Hey, Rob, are oh, wow. you there? Yeah, I'm here. So what was your experience with seat filling? Uh, I did it two years, uh, 2010 and 2012. Uh, the first one, all of the stories are from the pre-televised portion. Um, they brought me down and uh, I was in the, this is Radio City center section, third row on the aisle. It didn't even cross my mind at first to look around who was near me. Um, I was watching Karen Olivo and Gregory Jabara uh, announce all of the pre-televised awards. But it, and I'm just looking between the two people sitting in front of me. And uh, all I had noticed about them is as I sat down, the woman in front of me smelled of sugar cookies. Uh, <laughs> And but at one point, uh, Karen or Gregory made a joke and the woman's plus one turned to say something to her. And it was Ryan Reynolds. And I went, wait, he's married to. Oh, that's Scarlett Johansson sitting in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) And if I could get hold of the New York one feed from the pre-televised portion, they did have a camera come up to get a shot of her with me behind it, but I forgot to record that. Oh, so I, ne- so I never saw it. So somewhere there's footage of me sitting behind ScarJo. Oh, um, <laughs> and, uh, there was, uh, a bit of a run in with a PR person who in the 15 minutes before the, that ended and the broadcast started, came up and said, Oh, okay, you can leave now. And I'm like, Oh, is this your seat? And he's like, no, no, no. But the person will be here and, five minutes and i'm like oh okay they told us in training to stay here in the seats until the person's there and he was getting more and more agitated with me and i'm like i am sorry unless somebody comes to get me or they come and he goes uh wow this is really a dilemma <laughs> well it pays off he eventually he's he said leah michelle will be very upset if someone's in her seat <laughs> Uh, and I said, well, thank you for letting me know who it is. If I see her coming, I will get up and clear <laughs> the way. That's part of the job of the seat filler. T- and he started to say something else and a voice behind me uh, kind of cut me off and said, actually, he's doing exactly what he's supposed to. They'll do cut-ins during commercials, and we still want it to look full. And it was um, Julie Chen, Les Moonves' wife, mm. uh, bailing me out. So technically, for that pre-televised portion, I had a slightly better seat than the head of CBS sitting right in front of them. <laughs> Gee, that's surprising that that press person wasn't aware of the, you know, the protocol. I bet so, you the press person was trying to sit there themselves. No, oh, maybe. It's it possible. And two years later, during the pre-televised portion, this time at the Beacon, they went and sat me in a seat in the second row and said, hey, everyone's coming in. Don't get too uh, comfortable. But by sheer luck of the draw of the 10 of us or so that had been taken down there, whoever seat it was never showed up. So I sat in the second row of the Tonys the entire, oh, wonderful. The entire performance. Oh, that's um, great. Right behind James Marsden, right uh, behind in a couple seats down from Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield and whichever Jonas brother was sitting with them and a few seats down from Christopher Plummer. Rob, so, how did you get hooked up with these people? How did you end up? Did you like answer some sort of playbill ad or? Um, well, I used to attend uh, every week when Seth Rudetsky would have his show at the Times Square Information Center. Uh-huh. And that show was co-run by Sirius XM and people from the Broadway League. And I befriended some of them. And uh, one of them... I had asked one of them about the possibility of getting a ticket to the dress rehearsal because I heard that's more fun to attend than even the broadcast itself. And they said, oh, we can probably do that. Hey, you have a tux. You know, you can we can probably get you in as a seat filler. And and they sent me the form, much like Peter said, the application. And I did, you know, went through that and, you know, got there at four o'clock for the eight o'clock broadcast and was there till eleven. Um, first year you weren't allowed to bring a phone in with you at all the second time you could have it, but weren't allowed to take it out. Cause, and you know, and then the obvious rules, like 
if you're sitting next to someone famous, if they start talking to you, by all means, don't ignore them. But, you know, don't yeah. don't fan out on anybody. <laughs> so it was it was uh, it was a good time. And after that second, like as soon as I got home, I immediately was going to YouTube to, and got screenshots of myself um, that because uh, during the Godspell performance uh, there, I could see myself and they had a uh, spotlight shining around. So as pale as I am, there's a spotlight on me and I'm glowing blue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh-huh. that, that year also Jim Parsons introduced all of the uh, nominees for best play. And it started with the camera being upstage of him and having the audience in the background. And you could see me, you know, over his right shoulder in the audience for that one. So, Awesome, Rob. So I'm sure to be reposting those today at some point. All right. So we'll go back. Uh, Peter, you were starting into something. What was it? Oh, I don't know if I was, but I certainly have other memories. Um, one has to do with um, the 1979 Best Actor in a Musical Award. And um, that was the year of Sweeney Todd, and they're playing our song, and um, and to a lesser degree, Sarava. Anyway. So um, I talked to Robert Klein one time and um, he was nominated that year and the uh, winner was announced and, uh, and the winner is Len Cariou for Sweeney Todd. And Robert Klein said to me, I swear to you, I swear to you, when they announced the winner, I did not hear Len Cariou for Sweeney Todd. What I heard was not Robert Klein. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what I really heard. <laughs> so, so that's kind of fun. Um, one of the most amazing moments to me of the Tonys has to do with um, the winner of Best Score in 1993. It was a rare Tony tie, and um, it was Kander uh, and Ebb for Kiss of the Spider Woman and Pete Townsend for The Who's Tommy. Did you ever expect you would see Kander, Ebb, and Townsend on the same stage winning the same award at the same time? Was it I mean, Pete I, or Peter? Ah, good for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, maybe this is a good time as any to uh, deal with the trivia question. Do you want to um, deal with that sure. now or later? So, okay. no, let's do it now. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? In fact, I do. In fact, I do. The question last week was a musical by someone famous that closed out of town had a title that precisely told you when it took place. What is it? And Meredith Wilson of the Music Man fame (laughs) wrote a musical about Christopher Columbus, about his hoping to get his plans to sail across the ocean blue. It was called 1491. And it closed in San Francisco in 1969, ironically, the same year that the other musical titled by date, 1776, was produced. Paul Witte was the first to answer at 1055, while we were still recording, by the way, um, Mm -hmm. he was listening in. (laughs) Uh, Paul, by the way, is a great supporter of Music Theater of Wichita, uh, one of the great regional theaters in our country that I would nominate for a Tony Award any year. Um, So he was first, and Steve Bell, Tony Janicki, Carrie Winslow, Brigadude, Robert Lobiondo, Ingrid Gammerman, J. Aubrey Jones, Fred Abramowitz, Ed Glazier, Jack Leshner, Greg Christensen, Phil Bond, Richard Carey, Jeff Hickman, and Mike Meany were uh, also people who understood the question and got it. Uh, by the way, if you visit the Meredith Wilson Museum in Mason City, Iowa, and I have, you'll find quite a bit there on the Music Man. And you'll find a bit on the unsinkable Molly Brown and one measly display case for Here's Love, the musical of Miracle on 34th Street. (laughs) And what of 1491? Not a scrap of evidence anywhere on the premises that Wilson ever wrote such a thing. Hmm. Meanwhile, Joanna Abizi guessed Pacific 1860, which was by somebody famous, Noel Coward, and it did close out of town, way out of town, London, without ever playing Broadway. So I say that counts. And Greg Pavlak said Ziegfeld Follies of 1956, (laughs) which didn't have anyone particularly famous among its authors, although Jerry Bach, who contributed a song or two, certainly became famous. 
And now this counts, too, because Ziegfeld Follies of 1956 was genuinely Broadway bound, unlike Pacific 1860. It opened in Boston and closed in Philadelphia. And Mike Meany mentioned that, too. All right. This week's question. What do the musicals Miss Liberty, Call Me Madam, Wish You Were Here, Damn Yankees, Peter Pan, The Music Man, and Mr. President all have in common. Many people saying, ah, all 50s musicals. Ah, Mr. President was 62, so that's not the answers. (laughs) Uh, We'll look forward to hearing what uh, people have to say in the week to come. Peter, I saw that someone responded to your last question with 1492. Yes. That's that's really close. It is. (laughs) It is. We're not going to say who that is. I gave that person credit anyway because he knew it was um, Meredith Wilson that closed out of town. So that was good enough for me. So so that was um, quite good. Um, Yeah. Another one of the great opening numbers we haven't mentioned was certainly Chorus Line. The year of Chorus Line was such an exciting year because, of course, everybody knew the Chorus Line was going to win quite a few awards. Um, it's not going to win for Best Costumes, needless to say, <laughs> and Best Set, but it's going to win a lot of other awards. And fittingly enough, of course, those awards went to um, Pacific Overtures, as you would expect, uh, which was a spectacular production. But uh, Chorus Line was going to win everything, and the audience was... I, I think that may be the most excited audience that um, I have heard for the Tonys. Now you have to prorate it because I, I'm pretty sure that was at the Schubert Theater, uh, where Chorus Line, of course, was playing. And now, of course, with Radio City and the Beacon, whenever they use those theaters, those are substantially larger houses, and I, I imagine the decibel level is higher. But it, pound for pound, prorated, I would say that uh, the excitement that seemed to be coming through—I uh, was watching it on TV, I wasn't there—but it seemed to me uh, the most palpable because uh, Broadway had a show that it really could be proud of, and um, it certainly was. And um, it, it, you know, a, a lot of these shows that um, set long run records. I mean, when Hello, Dolly wanted to break My Fair Lady's record as the longest-running musical, David Merrick had to suffer some losing weeks to get it there, but he was going to spend the money just to make it happen. Similarly with Fiddler on the Roof. When Fiddler on the Roof broke Dolly's record as the longest-running musical, in fact, the longest-running show of all time at that point, um, losing weeks. But Harold Prince felt that he had made enough money from uh, Fiddler that it was worth it to keep it going just so it could become the longest-running show in Broadway history. But when Chorus Line broke the record, it was still profitable and almost ran as long again as it had um, when to break the record. So uh, so that was pretty impressive. <laughs> I was uh, just looking at this uh, Times article about the great moments, great moments in the Tony Awards, uh, and they talked about uh, Spring Awakening and the censors at CBS. Mm. Uh, as Mike, Michael was talking before about the, the opening number and, and the censors, this is a great article. I'll put that in the show notes as, as well. Michael, any other opening numbers for you? Uh, well, just back to the uh, Anthony Quinn, Neil Simon event for a moment. And another detail that I, that I clearly remember is that immediately after uh, Tony Quinn announced Neil Simon, uh, he realized what had happened. He and, he, and he literally said, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then I don't remember how they recovered after that. Who was he presenting with? I don't remember. I think uh, I think they recovered quickly, and maybe the the other person just turned over the envelope or or, or the or the card, and it was and the correct thing was on the other side. I, I don't remember, I, I, and I haven't had a chance to check to see if that <laughs> that clip is um, online. That would be something to see. But I, I suppose the whole thing wasn't as horrendous a screw up as the uh, uh, as the Oscars yeah, screw La La up La of, of a few years ago with La La Land and Moonlight. Right. Um, but it, it was uh, and, 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 you know, and all powered in Neil Simon for for making light of it and 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 just bringing it back to, uh, you know, a, a humorous event rather than 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 a really embarrassing moment. He, uh, count on him to to know exactly what to say when he when he did come up and, and get the award that that was a great moment i um uh, I, I made some random notes this is just some random other 
great Tony performances. And of course, there are so many. Uh, two Julie Andrews moments. She did Send in the Clowns in uh, the 1984 Tonys, um, you know, just as a one-off and not in costume. I mean, she hadn't played the role anywhere, but it was great to see her sing uh, that song and uh, from a role that, that she would have been absolutely mm, ideal for mm. and even though i mean there are some disappointments as i say it's not in costume and uh it's not really sung in, obviously it's not sung in context and also uh it's not the full song it's truncated but still it's there and it's more than we would have if they if they hadn't if somebody hadn't had the idea to let her do that number at all and then um in 1999 i looked it up julie andrews and carol burnett were both on the Tonys, and at one point, I think, at, I think towards the end, one of them said, uh, "It must have been Carol. Uh, thank you for coming to our show." <laughs> and the audience was, you know, I mean, they just loved seeing the the two of them reunited because they have such a great history. They do. Um, what else? Uh, nowadays, with Gwen mm-hmm. Verdon and Cheetah was mm-hmm. preserved thanks to the Tonys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Ma- Andrea McArdle, I think maybe Peter mentioned, uh, singing Tomorrow from Annie. Uh, and uh, the Lullaby of Broadway, the full, what looks to me like the full production number from 42nd Street with the original cast. Um, then there was, I don't, uh, we've mentioned it in the past, but not today, uh, that fabulous bit where charles nelson riley came out and oh yeah Mm. yes and sang um songs that he didn't get to sing (laughs) in musicals that that he was in but but songs that were not sung by his character so he did um uh, from how to succeed i guess he did i believe in you and from hello dolly i think maybe it was uh if it only takes a moment, as if I recall. No, well, that's one that he actually did sing. Oh wait, uh, yeah. oh no, I'm sorry. It's, it's, oh, it, uh, yeah, they're, they're right, exactly. Thank you. Uh, it was one of the other songs, obviously, and that was a really clever bit. And he made, um, I mean, he got a lot of humor out of it, but then he also sang the songs really well. So that. Was and I also idea. remember his singing, uh, his saying, and and then in skyscraper, the big eleven o'clock number, and he sings "Spare That Building," uh, which is not a great song, and uh, <laughs> you know, and he, and he made light of it. Um, you know, when you talk about people not doing things in costume, that brings up La Caja Fall, and uh, George mm. Hearn, when he uh, performed "I Am What I Am," was not in his dress that he wore um, at the first act of closing of that. I don't know why that happened. I'm not sure if George Hearn said, I'm not doing it um, in a dress. I'm not sure if uh, CBS said, you're not doing it in a dress. I don't know what happened there. If anybody has an explanation, I'd like to know, but I've never heard. Mm -hmm. And um, when you also mentioned uh, cute things that people say, it brings us to Dame Edna, who uh, the year after winning the Tony uh, got up there and said, uh, you were gracious enough to give me a Tony last year. And I still have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course, one of the things that's really crazy about the Tonys is there's no consistency in, um, in nominations. Um, the year that um, take me along uh, that, Again, fifty nine sixty. Okay, Jackie Gleason was nominated as Best Actor in a Musical. Fine. Great. And he won. No problem. Also nominated that year for Take Me Along was Walter Pidgeon, who was um, not quite the leading man, but damn close to it. And uh, may I say, has the best reprise in all of Broadway history in Staying Young. Get the album just for that. Uh, but also nominated in that Best Actor in a Musical category was Robert Morse who had all of, he was involved in four songs and really only about two of them were really his. Mm. And, and he was still in that category, even though he was billed below the title. Look at your cast album. You're going to see Robert Morse's name in much smaller print and below the title underneath Jackie Gleason, um, Walter Pigeon and um, Eileen Hurley. Okay. The next year, the very next year, Dick Van Dyke, wins for best featured actor in a musical for playing Albert Peterson and Bye Bye Birdie. He's involved in six songs and yet he's 
featured actor. You know, it, the nominators each year just uh, are just so uh, different, and um, they just have a different outlook on this, that, and the other thing. It's just so bizarre that um, the famous one, of course, is in 1969 when William Daniels was in the Best Featured Actor category because he wasn't billed above the title in 1776, and he actually took himself out of uh, contention, and uh, he would have won easily. There's no question about that. But the thing is, you would think that um, from the 1960 race where Robert Morse is in the Best Actor in a Musical category that they would have said to uh, let's let William Daniels in but again i don't know how many people are on the committee in those days there's something like 30 now um so there's a lot oh, of no it's, it's much bigger is it's it bigger much, than 30 yeah, it's much bigger than that really no okay yeah. um and uh i may have mentioned this in the past but i uh, i've never been a tony nominator i've been nominated for many other uh awards and i am told that you just vote you do not discuss mm. there's there is no discussion uh nobody goes to bat for anybody you just put down the names you think are uh, the ones, and that's all there is to it. So, um, so well, I've that. seen, uh, you know, I've we've all read a lot of discussion and had a lot of discussion about the category inconsistencies. But one thing I'm not clear about, maybe you know the, this as as a definitive answer, Peter. Has it always been the case that the producers were able to petition to uh, to put people in categories where they would not? normally be for example to to petition uh, to put someone who's not above the title in lead and vi- and vice versa well i do know that um, at least one of the awards, uh, I'm going to be circumspect here because I'm not sure how much I should divulge, Mm. but I do know at least one of the awards, the producers say, here's what we want. And then there is a subcommittee that says uh, yes or no to that. Um, The producers not have the final word on at least one of these other awards. That's all. Right. But my question is, have they always been able to even like, for, for example, way back in 1960, uh, did David Merrick say Robert Morse is going to be in that category? That's what you mean, right? Well, and I was thinking actually of Tammy Grimes, if I have the right year. Uh, no, that's the following year. But yeah, your point is well taken. Yeah. I mean, did did was that even a, a, a thing then? That- I don't think so, but I'm guessing. But okay. I don't think so. I think that's a more recent um, um, innovation, if you want to call it that. Maybe I should put quotation marks around the word innovation. Right. But, um, but I do believe that uh, that is uh, something that's... Um, more in recent years. Well, but. so since that, so that's that's another thing that that would be a major change because if if uh, now one can petition and in the past one couldn't, then that's yeah. yet another reason why uh, the, the inconsistencies. Some of them have been so odd. Sure, Peter. Sure. I uh, pulled up my list of the 2019 nominating committee. It's about 50 people. So 50. Uh, wow. 50, uh, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking more uh, 70. 80 people, but it's only really? it's 50 uh, wow. actors, choreographers, actors, writers, playwrights, uh, people from uh, various different things, the Dance Theater of Harlem, uh, people, mm. uh, Tim Federley, our friend Tim Federley was a nominator, uh, mm-hmm. Judith Dolan, costume designer. So it, it runs the gamut, about 50 people. Uh, and it uh, they serve two year terms, and uh, every year it, it sort of rotates. I think about half of the people rotate in and out every other year if they have two year terms. Wow, uh, you know I'm um, I'm on the uh, Lortel committee, and of course not this year. Um, we we had to do it uh, zooming, but um, there are about thirty, and I mean that room is pretty packed. So fifty, um, it, they must really <laughs> they probably do rent the booth theater to do something like that um, with fifty people. It, it's amazing to me thinking it must be like a schoolroom with desks. Um, and of course that. It's just the nominators, the overall yeah. vo- overall voters are eight, nine hundred or so. Sure, sure. I've sure. been told that for the nominators uh, and perhaps for the voters, too. But w- one of the reasons that there are so many is that they recognize that uh, often people need to recuse themselves for one yeah. reason or another. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Ah, uh, no, sure, yes. sure, yeah. sure. And that some does people, make sense. some people are more meticulous about that than others. But I've heard uh, many, many instances of people you know, being good about it and saying, well, I really should recuse myself because I have involvement with whatever. Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw out there something 
that I wanted to get your opinions on. Uh, and if you're in the uh, one of our attendees that's listening along, if if you have something to say, put it in the chat window. Um, I've I've got many different experiences from the Tony Awards uh, as a as a fan growing up and watching it before I got involved with the business and then uh, buying tickets and going to the Tony Awards and dating somebody who was involved in Tony Awards shows and she took me to the Tony Awards and then actually starting to work on the Tony Awards where I was in the press room. And then, of course, in the last couple of years, uh, Matt Tamanini and I have had this uh, Tony Awards wrap-up show where we would uh, work the Tony Awards and do the wrap-up immediately after. So I've had very different views on these things. Um, And what's interesting to me is that when I was in the audience uh, just watching the Tony Awards, one of the, the... brightest moments I had was uh, one year the to- uh, when Rosie O'Donnell hosted the Tony Awards, and I thought it was just so funny, so good. It was really, really wonderful. And then after the fact, everybody was like, oh, she was the worst host ever, <laughs> you know? And so I, I wonder if, um, if we're having a, you know, a theatrical moment where when we watch something live on television, it doesn't have the impact of where we're sitting in in the theater itself. Well, on a related note, the one time I attended live was the first year that it was at Radio City, and that was Rosie hosting. And and to go back to what Peter was saying earlier, absolutely, I agree that, that one should go at least once, if only to be in a huge theater with you know, like-minded people who love what you love. Um, I, I, I'm sure that it would be a better experience of the actual show when they were held in, in the smaller theaters and Broadway theaters. Uh, so I'm sorry. I regret that I never got to do that. And I don't imagine they will ever go back. Well, who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Who knows? Yeah. Um, uh, but maybe they'll go back uh, to a Broadway theater at some uh, point. Uh, but I do. Re- I, my specific memory of the Rosie O'Donnell night was uh, it was during a commercial, and someone from CBS or whatever was went over to speak with her and and, and say uh, have like a conversation with her that we we, we couldn't hear. And then she came back to the mic right before we were scheduled to go back on the air. And she said something like, um, you know, they're, te- they're telling me what to say and what not to say. They're concerned about what I'm going to say. I don't know what they're worried about. It's not like I said, fuck. And she said, <laughs> she said fuck right before, you know, camera, you know, we're on. <laughs> and so I think if you, if, if you watch a, a, you know, a, a recording of that Tony Awards, you can probably hear the end of the audience laughing. <laughs> <laughs> to the to the broadcast. Um, the, uh, one of the performances we haven't mentioned that really has to be mentioned, of course, was Dreamgirls and uh, Jennifer Holliday. Yeah. Jennifer Holliday doing, uh, and I am telling you, I am not going, is certainly one of the most memorable. But I'll mention something else that was really quite wonderful the uh, the first year that um, I I attended, and that's when Alex Cohen was still doing them, mm. and. Anyway, you had to get there an hour before to make sure everybody was in place and what have you. And he wanted to make sure that all the nominees were in place. So he would say, Dorothy Loudon, and you'd have to hear, you know, Andrea McArdle, hear, Lenny Baker, hear. Um, and it was just so amazing to hear this type of schoolroom thing that you've heard from your professors over the years done with all these celebrities, you know, Joel Gray present, you know, that type of thing. It was just amazing (laughs) to hear these voices in this context saying this word here when, you know, you've been in many rooms where you've said here and you've heard other people say here and the, and the wise ass who say present. Um, But to have the celebrities do it really made it a very special thing. And I don't, believe when i started going later after alex cohen's reign that um that that happened i don't recall it happening only during those alex cohen years but it was really a great fun part of the evening Mm. hearing that roll call i enjoyed that (laughs) immeasurably all right so uh i'm gonna wrap it up do you guys have anything else that you have to get in for today no i think that'll swing it yeah i think that's it 
All right. So before we go, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your final podcast, you can listen to Broadway Radio's offerings. If you want to join us on a, on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time to listen to us live, get over to Patreon.com slash Broadway or is it patreon.com slash Broadway Radio excuse me and uh, and you can uh, check out the information of how to join us on a Sunday morning to listen to us live and perhaps participate so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway bye bye bye, bye.